Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. I'm here today with Anthony Bradley, Professor of Religious Studies and Director of the Center for the Study of Human Flourishing at the King's College in New York City. Anthony, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Anthony is also the rare, truly interdisciplinary scholar. Not only does he have his PhD in Historical and Theological Studies from Westminster Theological Seminary, but also he is a licensed pastor and has a master's in criminal justice from John Jay College, a master's in ethics and society from Fordham University. And I see that you also were a biology student. I was. I was. That was my major. And I, I had a brief career as a chemist. I, I was a pharmaceutical chemist before I switched disciplines. Yeah. Yeah. So genuinely interdisciplinary. And, and his work really bears that out. One of the things that struck me in your work, Anthony, is that your acknowledgments in at least one of your books talk about a lot, a lot about people who have helped you be a better writer. And this is something that every writer experiences and every academic writer experiences, but you rarely see it in acknowledgments. It's as if we all just sort of like, you know, uh, matriculated in the profession knowing how to be good writers. So what was your reasoning behind exposing yourself as someone who needs help writing? That's a fantastic question. I, I, think, I think it was just sort of the, the epistemic humility to know that other people make me sound smart, right? I mean, you know, when I, when, when I rely on people who are better at words than I am, uh, it really does allow me to present my ideas in ways that that really make it communicate better. I, I first experienced the, the value of this, and this is when I was sold. I actually wasn't from publishing books. It was from writing op-eds. And I would write these uh, newspaper op-eds, and the editor would just tear it up, right? And so I'm thinking, I have a PhD. Come on, like I know how to do this, right? But what, what I noticed is that when my editor would rip it up and help me rephrase it, it actually, it actually was better. And I thought, huh, you mean editors make me better? And that was sort of the, <laughs> that was sort of the you know, the, the sort of entering in the humility of saying, hmm, I'm not perfect, I'm not omniscient. And, and actually, when I submit myself to people who have good skills and different eyes, they actually improve the quality of my work. So I'm at a point now where I, I only submit things that are pre-edited. And if when I, when I submit a book manuscript, I, I pay out of pocket to have somebody copy edit it first before I send it to the publisher for the final copy edit. Yeah. Uh, you're a member of Alpha Phi Alpha, uh, America's first black fraternity. How did Alpha Phi Alpha start and what does it mean to you to be a member? Yeah, great question. So that, that uh, fraternity started in 1906 at Cornell University. And uh, for me, it's, it's a part of sort of my, my family history. 
I was raised in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was raised in a community of people who were basically middle class, but a lot of graduates of Spelman and Morehouse College, these sort of HBCUs, classic HBCUs in Atlanta. And in the church community where I was raised, most of the African-Americans who were professionals uh, were members of, of uh, sort of black Greek organizations. And Alpha Phi Alpha was one of those famous people that, that might come to mind, might be Martin Luther King was a member of that fraternity, uh, Thurgood Marshall, uh, men like that. And so for me to sort of be in a legacy of, of black men who sort of, you know, saw themselves as, as wanting to make a difference sort of in mind, body and soul was, was really important to me. So I wanted to make sure uh, that I had some really important tie back to the community that, that raised me. And, and these Greek organizations had a, had a role in that. So it, it really sort of helps me keep myself grounded and afoot, uh, firmly planted in issues related to the black community. A lot of, uh, some of my students are, feel as they approach graduation torn between two ideals. One is to be successful in New York City, right? The as a kind of let's 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 let that stand in for meritocratic success and the other is to move into a house down the street from their parents and get married and raise kids and have a, a you know a comfortable suburban existence what are the what considerations should a student like that have i think i mean i i'm actually burdened pretty heavily for this on the part of gen z and and younger millennials because they they get you know sort of bombarded with with mixed messages. On the one hand, you need to go do something amazing, right? Like you need to go change the world, climb a mountain, pursue your dreams, find a passion, and go kill it out in the marketplace. And then they get this other message of like, well, you know, you want a good life, you want kids and a family and soccer and all the good things that you had. And they're really torn between that. And and what I've seen just with our own alumni that have lived in the city. I would say that I'm impressed that a lot of Gen Zers now are making decisions based on place and relationships rather than a career and upward mobility in, in terms of career advancement. And what I'm finding is what really matters is, is your quality of life. And if you are able to have good friendships, good connection, good community, you're going to have a much more fulfilling life than simply making a lot of money and being disconnected from other people. And and insofar as students can craft their their next steps out of college in ways that could allow them to have the best relationships they can have, they actually don't need the perfect job. They don't need the perfect career because there's so there's so many more things in life that are that are fulfilling. Uh, than going to work and and being productive in, a, in an office building. And, and I think those relational aspects, those community aspects, that connection of having close friends with whom you laugh and cry and share dreams and fears with whom you can do nothing with. I mean, those are the relationships that make life matter and allow you to sort of persevere through the seasons of, of difficulty and challenge and celebration as well. Carry the same theme over into uh, Christian culture. In 2013, you tweeted, being a radical missional Christian is slowly becoming the new legalism. We need more ordinary God and people lovers. Is that a trend that you're still seeing happen? And, and, and what does that look like? 
I think the, so there's sort of been a bit of a transition, right? So the millennial generation was often characterized as sort of wrestling with a sort of production-based narcissism, that you're loved and valued on the basis of, of what you can do in your production. And so lots of aspirations to, to do something amazing for God, right? You can't just be the sort of Christian that's mentioned in, in Thessalonians, where it says the make it your ambition to live a quiet life and work with your hands and mind your own business. That's what it says. And what I noticed is that, is that no one ever motivated young people to just be normal and to mind their own business and to work with their hands and, and to live a quiet life, to actually have that as an aspiration. And what I found is, and this really hit me when I saw students literally having anxiety attacks in my office because of the performance pressure to go do something amazing and they didn't want to do anything amazing. They basically wanted to get married, uh, have kids, you know, get a minivan, have a barbecue, and 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 be involved in ballet and soccer. And I'm saying that's I'm saying that's great. But this idea that you have to do something extraordinary and amazing and noteworthy actually created this idea that your value comes from your performance. Your acceptance comes comes because of your performance. And even in the Christian context, your acceptance to God is based on how well you do amazing things for God. And I was basically seeing as a theologian, like this Bible doesn't say that at all. In fact, the Bible encourages people to do the opposite, right? To scale it back, tone it down, and to really invest oneself in the things that actually matter, which has much more to do with with loving those around you and, and focusing on the development of your character. Why does the concept or the category of poor white trash exist? If you're if you're a white supremacist, isn't it enough just to have light skin? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think I think that what I what I've noticed is that poor white people often get ignored when we think about public policy. And this hit me a few years ago. I read this book called The Redneck Manifesto, uh, which was which was a book written to sort of highlight the fact that lower class white people in this country, the people that we mock in trailer parks and things like this, they have often the same sorts of pathologies that we, that we attribute to inner city areas. And there's also a lot of pain and struggle and suffering in those lower income communities as well. But our, our attention is often placed on, on cities. Uh, and so that, that term, that term white trash, we also, there are other synonyms, redneck, uh, cracker, things like that. Uh, those sorts of synonyms are really derived, really sort of started in the mid 18th century when upper class elites in this country were simply trying to figure out why it is that these sort of working class, lower class whites would not aspire to be more intellectually accomplished or to have higher standards of living. And it was a way that the elites would separate themselves from the other. It was, it was a, it was a, and, and, and othering mechanism. And essentially you had from the UK, well, from, from what we uh, call now the UK, the British oppress, as, as we all know, right, the, the Scots and the Irish. And so when the, when the Brits came over and the Scots-Irish migrated, the same sorts of tensions that were prevalent over there between the Brits and the Scots and the Scots-Irish and Irish, they basically exported all those over here. 
So when they came over here, you had those same sorts of dynamics, and that's how we got the, the term hillbillies, right? The hill, hillbillies were uh, descendants of William of Orange, and when they came, they migrated over to the U.S., they were called the billies. They're actually called the billies over there in Northern Ireland. When they migrated over, these upper-class elites essentially pushed them out into the rural areas, and that's how we got the, the, term, the term hillbillies. So there's a narrative in this country about lower-class white culture that has been unexplored and I think probably explains a lot of our political tensions today. The largest eugenics and sterilization project in United States history was focused on Appalachian white trash. Why was it seen as necessary to control specifically the reproductive capabilities of the of the Appalachian poor. Is this a carryover from chattel slavery that uh, a certain kind of reproductive control of enslaved black people is now being uh, imposed on, on the poor white people? Yeah, I, I think it probably has. I mean, I, th- I think it had more to do with, with the advances in the progressive era from the the late 19th century. And so it had a lot more economic motivations than simply a carryover because it really began uh, more in in the UK as well. So so, so many of this, the the eugenics movement, you know, sort of began really in this conversation between uh, the English and and, and, uh, Americans. And so what happened, right? It was during the progressive era. I, I I tell the joke that the Industrial Revolution was picking up steam, and then I pause, and no one laughs. Um, yeah, yeah, that's how that goes, right? Uh, so, so the Industrial Revolution was picking up steam, and what was noted, particularly in the Northeast, in these industrial cities, is that there was this group of people who were basically slowing progress and getting in the way, and that we would advance much faster if we removed this sort of bottom quintile from our population that we would be, we would sort of, right, this is kind of social Darwinism, right? We sort of allow the fittest to reproduce. And if we remove those that aren't fit, we will make even more progress. Now, this was, came to an abrupt end with World War II. But in the beginning of the 20th century, I mean, they were forcibly sterilizing thousands of, of lower class white women, calling them feeble-minded because they, because they did not want this population to slow down all of this industrial progress that we're making uh, in the West, and in, in the West, and in particular, in particular, in the uh, U.S. and in Britain. Now, what's also what's also really terrible to think about the connection. Uh, there's a great book called uh, Hitler's American Model. Is that the Germans studied the American Jim Crow system and began to research eugenics. And that was the birthplace of the program that the Nazis used to exterminate the Jews. And so what we learned in the book, Hitler's American Model, is how it's basically how uh, the Third Reich, uh, the Nazis used American eugenics and the Jim Crow system to model uh, their oppression of the Jews in, in Germany. So there's a particular narrative that I think is plays a prominent role in arguments for colorblindness. And this is that, you know, waves of immigrants from all parts of the world came over to the U.S. and initially were viewed as colored racial others. So there's this whole category of of the black Irish, and you just described a kind of racialized 
oppression of of the Scotch Irish uh, who came to the U.S. So first of all, how does an immigrant class be become white? And then if it weren't for the fact that they did have pale skin, would they have been able to become white? Oh, that's a that's a great question. The, the second one, I mean, I would I'd have to say no. I don't think you could become white. I mean, what's, what a lot of people probably don't realize is that that whiteness as we know it now is really a post-World War II category. That you had to earn the right to be white. In fact, if you were really of, of, of English descent, that was really the only class of people who were considered sort of truly white. Everybody else had to earn it. So this is one of the reasons why uh, so many immigrants had to change their last names from the, you know, from the Italian, Polish, Greek names that they, that they brought with, because that was part of their process of becoming white. What's really, what's really tragic about that history is that one of the ways in which immigrants from Western Europe could sort of prove their, their whiteness uh, was to disassociate themselves and, and if not uh, oppress African-Americans. In fact, there's lots of good research on this that shows that, that one of the first things that immigrants learned when they came in the early, in the early 20th century were racial slurs against African-Americans. So if you could basically prove that you weren't black, that was the, the, the sort of gateway into proving that you were white. And there are terrible stories of, of Greeks being chased down in Chicago uh, by these sort of lynch mobs and, and these guys yelling out, I'm not black, I'm Greek, as a way to say, no, 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 you got, you got the wrong guy. And so as, as, as long as you could disassociate yourself from African-Americans, you could achieve, achieve whiteness. But really allow whiteness to be the thing that we, that we have right now was World War II. Because for the first time, you had all of these immigrant groups bound together, working together for the same cause. And what happened? You had guys on the line in these trenches who learned, wow, well, my dad said Italians were like this and this and this, and that Polish people were like this and this and this, and you're not like that at all. You're like me. We're both white, right? Well, after the war, and, 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 but you didn't have that because African-Americans weren't integrated. So they didn't even have the opportunity to sort of work side by side with other soldiers to be seen as the same. The World War II equalized whiteness in ways that it wouldn't have happened otherwise. So when we came back from World War II, you had basically two classes of people. You had the sort of colored, right, Negro uh, race, as it was called then, and white people. And whiteness as a new category back then was opened up in the 1950s to include all these, all these immigrants, uh, all these immigrant communities uh, that would not have been considered white. And last point here, if anyone watches sort of 1970s sitcom, All in the Family, uh, you'll see there's a character in that sitcom, in that sitcom uh, Archie Bunker. It's set in, in Brooklyn, 1970s. He's a white guy, lives in Brooklyn, has a blue collar job. And you can see the, the sort of last stages, the sort of remnants of, of the sort of distinctions between whiteness on that show as he talks about the Polacks, uh, as he talks about the Italians, he talks about the Greeks, uh, things like that. And so we, we, where we are today, it sort of took us a war to get to as we worked out uh, these categories between us.
in the public school district that uh, my family lives in, there seems to be an ideological divide between, well, first of all, there's, there's a kind of de facto segregation between two elementary schools. One is up the hill, one's down the hill. The one up the hill is 90% white. The one down the hill, 90% black, or 95%, I think, actually. And so there's a huge discrepancy in, in test scores and, and overall performance between these two schools. And so there's this ideological divide between those who look at the low test scores of black students and say that the school is failing or the school system is failing to provide them with an equi equitable education on the one hand. And then there's those who look at those scores and say that they are evidence of a lack of parental involvement. But what I don't hear in this debate is the role that trauma plays in many children's lives and and in our school in, in many poor children's lives and in our school district that typically means many black children's lives. How does childhood trauma affect educational outcomes? That's a that's a great question. I, I think I think that the, the student that, that uh, a student's experience of um, sort of shelter in place during COVID may may make this may make this make more sense to them in ways that it, it may not have earlier, right? Like so many of my students were not able to concentrate. Um, they weren't able to focus. Uh, they were often distracted because they were trying to complete their coursework back at home with three or four siblings, two dogs, a cat, parents right there, all this activity, and they couldn't get their work done because of all the distractions. Well, you can think of trauma as a distraction in the sense that, in the sense that your brain sort of loops, recounts a really terrible traumatic event and triggers actually impair your, your capacity to function. When I was a high school, I taught, I taught high school part-time when I was uh, finishing up my PhD. And I'll never forget this one student uh, from the city of Philadelphia the school I was teaching was right on the line. It was a private school between the county and the city. So we got both communities. Philadelphia is the only city I know in the country where the public school buses bus all kids to school, public or private. So because of that, our private school was able to get a lot of kids from sort of downtown inner city, uh, Philadelphia. And so I had this student, brilliant student, absolutely brilliant student, probably one of the smartest ones I've ever had, Puerto Rican kid. And I remember one day I asked him about his homework and he didn't have it. And of course, as a teacher, you're going to chastise a student because he didn't have his homework. But I took him out in the hallway and I'm like, hey, where's your homework? And he starts crying. And I asked him, well, what are you, what are you, like, what, what's going on? And basically someone had been murdered in front of his building and the blood still on the parking is, is still on the sidewalk. And the body tape was around where the body was. And he had to walk through that to get in his apartment. And he was so shaken up by the fact that a human being died in front of his building that he wasn't able to focus. And, and the idea, and I think, I think for someone like me who grew up in a, you know, very kind of quote unquote boring middle class home where there was no trauma, no drama, right? I mean, the only drama was like, you know, are we going to have pizza tonight or like cheeseburgers? I mean, that was like the big, the big traumatic event. You know, when you live in a very comfortable setting, you don't realize what's not, what's not happening to you that's happening to others. And so children who grow up in very chaotic, very painful, physically abusive, sexually abusive, 
violent contexts actually don't have capacity to study and focus and get work done. And then secondly, um, they often don't get the help they need in terms of mental health uh, services to, to sort of come back to a place of agency so that they can actually be, be productive. So what you tend to find, and this is, a, this is not a, I mean, this should be in some ways an intuitive correlation, is that students that, that experience very high amounts of, of trauma and abuse also struggle the most in school. What would trauma-informed Christian youth ministry look like? I think if we were if we were thinking about the fact that a lot of children do come from trauma, um, I think that we would we would be more patient with the expectations that we have of them, and that we would really we would really interpret much of their behavior in light of their trauma rather than interpreting their behavior in light of something like deviance or rebellion or something like that. I'll give you an example. I did youth ministry for 14 years. One of the things that, that we notice in the church context, for especially for high school boys, uh, is that whenever a boy grew his hair out over his face, kind of over his eyes, and became a heavy, heavy marijuana user, in almost every single instance of that I've ever seen, he had very broken issues with his dad. So lots of lots of high school boys will process, will kind of numb the pain of their fathers, numb brokenness by using drugs and alcohol, by abusing drugs and alcohol. And so I think a trauma-informed approach would say, hey, the, the goal is not behaviorism, where we sort of get the kid to be good. Right? The goal is to help him deal with the brokenness and trauma of his, of his, of his, of his family, right? Maybe, maybe when we deal with the, the real core issue, it actually will address the issues that, that, that affect the behaviors that we, we see are actually undermining their thriving uh, and, and wanting to get the proper help with. You've written that black theological scholars are able to offer unique contributions to the practice of faith and applications of the biblical text given the knowledge that our experience of the Trinity is shaped sociologically as well as biblically. Can you say more about this? What does it mean for black Christians' experience of the Trinity to be shaped sociologically? Yeah, I think, I think part of, of, at least in the, in the black context, you're thinking about who, who is God and, and what does God intend for his world and his people. And it's, it's actually... I think, I think fair to the text to recognize, when I say the text, I mean the, the biblical text, it's fair to recognize that our social location has a lot to do with our interpretation of the scriptures. Our approach to the Bible has a lot to do with our social location, where we are, how we lived, how we were raised. I mean, as human beings, right, we bring those things to, to text. We bring those backgrounds to text. And in the black experience, because of, of histories of oppression and things like that, the, the experience that was brought to the text highlights the Old Testament narrative, right? Where God is a, is a, is a restore and, and liberator of the oppressed. And so in the black experience, there was much more affinity to Israel in relating to God as the God of Israel, who, who saved them from, from Pharaoh, right? Who fought their battles for them, who provided justice and mercy on their behalf. That's the God in the Black experience 
that that sort of comes to recognize what the Trinity is, right? You have the Father who's who's protecting and, and guiding his children. You have you have the Son who provided both forgiveness and resurrection power to enable his his people to fight against the evils that are out there in the world. You have the Son that actually, sorry, the Spirit that actually empowers and and provides the tools by which God's people can 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 actually enter in to fighting against injustice and evil. And that that sort of Old Testament God, the God who who rescues and saves because of his grace and mercy, uh, that's the God that was heavily leaned on during the civil rights movement. And so if you listen to a lot of the the sermons of people like Martin Luther King Jr., if you read the text there, they're going to be much more, they're going to be more images to the Old Testament. Uh, narrative, then there are going to be uh, references and, Im- and, and, and images that are brought from, from the New Testament. So that, that position of oppression and being on the margins highlights certain parts of, of the biblical story uh, over, over others. And that's how the Black experience really engaged uh, so much of that redemptive story. Narcissism among Christians is a common theme in your work. What is missional narcissism and what are the alternatives? Great. Yeah, I think this, this was highlighted. Uh, there's, a, there's a book by uh, Jean Twenge called The Narcissism Epidemic, uh, where she highlights that at least for millennials that, and, and, and right, there's always debate on like, which was the worst generation ever. Right? But there's really good data that indicates if you look at the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Manual in Psychology, and, and the attributes for clinical narcissism, what psychologists began to note, probably beginning in the early 2000s, is the number of cases of, of narcissism. And what, what they begin to see is that so much of, of, what the, of what the sort of millennial culture was embracing, being vulnerable to, uh, were, were some of the symptoms of, of, of clinical narcissism. They're sort of leaning that way. And so I basically, I basically connected the dots because what I saw in a lot of sort of Christian culture, again, this idea that, that you are amazing. And not only that, our local church is amazing. And if we are not here, the world is going to suffer. And it's a sort of idea that, that you know, we are, we are incredibly important. We matter. Uh, we are the ones changing and shifting our society and culture. I myself, as, a, as an individual, is, is sort of brilliantly uh, awesome. Uh, not because of anything I did, I've just been told that. And so it created a, a situation where a lot of evangelicals, a lot of conservative evangelicals believe they're the most important people in the world. And they're the most important uh, Christians in the world. And a lot of them think that they're their little local church of 200 people like is the most important church in the whole city and that they don't need to work with anybody else because they're self-contained and amazing. And I begin to see trends of of both individuals believing that they're awesome and, and these sort of churches also believing that they're just, they're just the most amazing thing. And what's being, what's lost, what's absent is the focus on, on humility. Like where, what happened to that virtue? It's almost disappeared in a culture that values performance and materialism and influence and power 
and things like that. And so what I saw were Christians really being vulnerable to caring about those very same things instead of the sort of classic cardinal virtues, which I think allows people to live much better lives. You've talked about uh, a kind of dilemma of black evangelicals having the difficult burden of having to navigate between four worlds, the several hundred year old, well-established black church universe, the evangelical church subculture, mainstream black culture, and mainstream Anglo-oriented American culture. Tell me about this experience. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, it's really really important. That's a great point. I think, and anyone who is in a racial minority group will be able to relate to this. In America, if you're not a member of the dominant culture, you have to basically be experts on on two: your subdominant culture, right? So your 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 culture and the dominant culture, because you because you you are in and out of it all the time, right? You you participate and remove yourself. And so if you are a minority, you basically have to be experts on all the intricacies of your own subculture and all the intricacies of the dominant culture. And in religious context, it adds another layer because you also then have to know all the norms of, of your subculture's religious practices and the norms of the dominant culture's religious practices as well. And so the intersection of those things uh, can be quite maddening and neurotic and time-consuming. Like for me, what does it mean? Uh, I have basically have to know all the music. I have to know, I've got to know, on, on the one hand, you know, Drake, right? Rihanna. But, I've, you know, I've, I've also, on the you know, other hand, you know, Taylor Swift and, and pop culture stuff over there. And then, not only that, when I go to a white church, I have to basically uh, sing the, the, the songs that they sing, Shine, Jesus, Shine, is Christian contemporary music out of Nashville. But then, but then when I go to a black church where I have to be able to change the key completely, change the cadence, change the rhythm and everything, and, and sing This Little Light of Mine, in a completely different way, or I have to know all the, the the Negro spirituals and hymns that aren't written down anywhere. And so that that can be, it's just so, it can be so exhausting and time consuming to have to be experts at sort of black church culture, black church music, regular church black, I'm sorry, uh, a regular black culture. So, you know, BET and, and, you know, Chris Rock and Erica Badu, but then I've also got to you know, read the onion and uh, be able to talk about, you know, reruns of Friends and, and Seinfeld and stuff like that. I, you know, I have to know all this stuff in order to navigate between these two worlds. It's interesting. You know, uh, exhaustion and tiredness seems to be a theme that I'm that I'm seeing a good bit these days on Black Twitter. And I think in your early work, you you wrote about tiredness as as a kind of an affect that that colors everything. Can you say a little bit more about what's the you know you're not you're not saying that you don't have enough sleep. You're talking about is there something that various experiences of exhaustion and tiredness have in common and that is particularly a part of the experience of your experience of black Christianity or, or black life? Yeah, I think I think you know there's a there's that phrase race battle fatigue. And, I, and I, you know, when I first read that, I thought, 
what does that mean? And then I, and then I read the article and I sat for about two minutes and I was like, that's it. <laughs> that explains what happens is that you basically, you know, you sort of think about bandwidth or maybe gas, uh, gasoline in a gas tank that, you know, you, you expend so much energy talking about race issues and your tank gets empty and you do, you, and you're on E and you really can't, you really can't get it refueled because you don't, you're not given opportunity to, because you're always still talking about race, like oh, again and again and again and again and again and again. And you just get exhausted. It just wears you up mentally to not be able to not talk about race. And I think, I think this is one of the reasons why, you know, all the black kids sit together at lunch. Or when I was, when I, I, I graduated from Clemson University, when I was at Clemson, all the black students sat in one section of the dining hall. Why is that? Why do we do that at Clemson? Because for at least one meal of the day at, at dinner time, we weren't black. We were just people. And we didn't have to talk about race. We didn't have to talk about racial tensions. We didn't have to talk about anything else. We could just sort of be. And being able to just sort of be and, and take a break from being black, I think, really speaks to why so many people are, are exhausted right now, because you're not able to take a break. Because there's all this sort of constant barrage of issues that we're talking about again and again and again, year after year after year. And people are completely worn out about talking about the exact same thing again and again and again. I was talking to a neighbor recently, and he said, I'm getting the feeling that this time is different, that something's happening that, you know, he's expressed to me before similar exhaustion, but he was saying, I'm getting the feeling that, you know, people are finally starting to hear what we've been saying. Is that, is that a, do you have a feeling that this is some kind of inflection point? Absolutely. I've talked to several friends, colleagues, black scholars, they were sort of all saying the same thing. This, this, this seems to be very, very different. Yeah. The duration alone is, is pretty, pretty historic. Uh, Tom Segrew, who's a, a historian at NYU, he, he said that this could be the first time in American history that we've had this level of, of protest last this long in every state in the country. We just haven't seen anything, anything like this. So we, there is a sense that like this is very different, and you know there are multiple conditions that probably contributed to this being different: shelter in place, uh, the, the advent of social media, cameras on phones, those sorts of things, people not being able to be distracted by sports, uh, the constant news cycle, the sort of timing, all these things, right? Probably added to this. So this is so fascinating to think about. This is one of the first times I would say since, and this is like a new idea. I'm just, I'm just thinking about it right now. I mean, I think, I think, I think this is one of the first times I'd say maybe since the eighties, maybe early nineties, where the entire country was focused on the same thing. The advent and the introduction of cable television really did disperse the way that we consumed uh, media. And what we saw uh, as we got into the 1990s is that as, as, as the options increased, as the internet expanded, as people had more, more, more places to go, and they were receiving different streams of information, you could be blind to lots of things. 
totally blind. You could be completely cut off from a lot, a lot of the, of the uh, realities. But I think because of the constant news cycle, the constant post on, on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, right, and Snapchat, right, and Facebook, I mean, there was the, 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 the sort of content swirl forced everybody to, fo- to, hit, to focus on this. It, it was impossible, to be on, on any social media platform and not be confronted with this. It was impossible to log on to any of your favorite uh, news networks and not be confronted on this, on this issue. It was everywhere. So I, I think it really was it sort of seared itself in, in people's consciences in ways uh, because everybody was experiencing it uh, together. So we'll see exactly, you know, I'm not able to predict what it, what it will look like, We'll see in the next six months to a year, two years, or maybe longer, uh, what what fruit will be born from all from all of this collectively. What is a criminal? Whoa, that's a that's a complicated question. Uh, depends on on who you ask. Typically, uh, criminals. I mean, I guess the the basic definition would be someone who's committed a crime, actually broken broken a law, which basically means that we're all criminals because we all break laws all the time. And so I'd say a criminal is everyone, and everyone is a, is a criminal. The difference is that some of us go to jail and prison, and some of us don't. Whatever state you're in, if you check the laws in your state, there are hundreds of them, and you have broken one. And by the time the, the sun rises tomorrow, uh, you would have broken a few of them. Even in your own home, uh, you would have broken some laws. So we live in a country of criminals. We're all criminals, um, but some of us have to pay for our crimes and some don't. I was listening this week to The Economist Tyler Cohen's conversation with legal scholar and criminal justice reformer Rachel Harmon, and Cohen repeatedly asked Harmon, what technocratic tweak could we make to the criminal justice system that would produce the most bang for the buck, so to speak? And Harmon kept resisting the questions. And so one takeaway from this conversation would be that the problems are so complex and intractable that a marginal revolution is not possible. That is, it's not possible to change policies around the margins and hope for meaningful reform. But another explanation that occurred to me could be that technocratic solutions don't address people as persons. And I know that, that, that you have drawn a lot on the personalist tradition. So how is a personalist approach to criminal justice reform different from a legal and technocratic reform? Yeah, so the personalist tradition works on building systems and structures uh, that are concomitant with the virtues of what it means to be human. And so human dignity becomes the sort of telos of the entire system. So you're thinking about ways in which the criminal justice system sort of undergirds, promotes, ennobles human dignity, not dehumanization. So the point of, of punishment, uh, of, of, I would say retribution, is actually humanizing the person. This isn't rehabilitating right, them or is just propping them up to, to sort of get a job. But thinking about ways to, to, to restore the dehumanizing aspects of people that often lead to, to criminal deviance. And if we thought about the criminal justice system from the person up rather than from policy down, opinions down, political ideology down, if we thought about it from the person up, we would first begin with the virtues of what it means to be human, 
And then we would extrapolate out and think about the ways in which to organize, to sort of create a justice system that actually humanizes both uh, uh, perpetrators and victims and, and humanizes uh, local communities so that we can restore people that have broken the social contract back to uh, civil society, which is, which is really what we want. Now, of course, there are some, there are some cases that are so egregious, they have to be removed from the community permanently. Uh, but if the goal is, is really rehumanizing people, then it changes how we process them through the system. It changes how we arrest them. It changes how we build prisons, the architecture. It changes the way we dress them. It changes how we feed them. It changes how we counsel, how we parole. It um, uh, redirects, reorganizes the ways in which we, we think about all of the contact points to see if those contact points are making the person more human. And if anyone's ever been to a prison or a jail, the architecture alone will make you a worse person. And there's absolutely no, there should be no expectation that anyone who goes to a a maximum security prison, living in the architecture of that is going to come out better, right? Human beings is the way that that we're made. Like we need uh, certain inputs because those things form us, right? And, and, and sorry, and, and not only that, environmental inputs, those things do form us. And humanizing the ways in which we treat inmates uh, can actually change the way that, that the time away from the community allows them to successfully reenter and thrive. And so there's a, there's a small movement in architecture right now, thinking about redesigning prisons in ways that foster things like lots of natural light, lots of green space meals that are actually good. And it's not because people who commit crimes uh, deserve, you know, sort of the club med of prisons, but people who commit crimes uh, need to be restored so that their humanity can make a contribution to the common good later. We don't want them to remain criminals or to remain in criminality. We want them to make transitions out of those. And, And something as simple as building architecture can have a massive effect on that. We've seen that in some of the Nordic countries where they built prisons in ways that are quite beautiful and they've had great uh, recidivism data uh, uh, from people who've been, who served time in, in those facilities. You've argued that a major missing piece in criminal justice reform is getting civil society involved. So civil society is made up of mediating institutions, forms of voluntary association that occupy a space between... You know, families and government, things like labor unions, churches, sports leagues, fraternities. But we're living through a steep decline in precisely these kinds of association. So what, what's the answer? New forms of civil society? Renewal of the old forms? What, what shows the most promise to you today? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating to think about the, the Black Lives Matter process we're happening now. Um, that was initiated by a civil society institution and it was able to really captivate on the on the heels of of George Floyd's death the Black Lives Matter movement as a as a nonprofit was was able to organize through various media forms all sorts of protests as a protest crew they they were able to really capture that and that's what civil societies can do uh, sorry uh, uh, civil society institutions can do they can really rally people in local ways to do amazing things to make their communities better. I think this generation in particular of, of college students and young adults 
they seem to have uh, more interest in sort of nonprofit uh, capacities, both internationally and, and locally. There seems to be more interest in what nonprofits can do, more interest in starting and being and being uh, and participating in, in nonprofits. And that's the right sort of direction. Right? That's the right way to think. How can we provide? How can we provide alternatives to introducing solutions to my local community that allow citizens and neighbors to actually participate? and making their communities better and to make contributions to the common good. Because it's not really it's not really the burden, the way our country was set up, it's not, it's not really the burden of government to produce and create human flourishing. Uh, the state's there to provide the structure in which human flourishing can happen, but really it's the institutions of, of civil society that are the engine of human flourishing. And what we've done in the West, beginning in the late 19th century, around the 1860s, with Otto Bismarck, as he was sort of trying to fight off Marxism, is that we 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 begin to rely more and more on the state to create to actually produce uh, human flourishing. And so I, I think I think if we're able to think locally about the ways that the various uh, spheres that we participate in are actually making our communities better. They're making our neighborhoods better. They're making our city better uh, so that we aren't reliant on depersonalized ways in which those things tend to happen through the means of, of state programming or even federal programming. And uh, so, uh, so I'm hopeful of sort of not recapturing the old necessarily institutions, but maybe recapturing the spirit of local compassion and care and love for neighbors when you connect with people in your own community by creating those third places that really facilitate people's thriving and allow them to live well, uh, enjoy life and, and, and connect with their neighbors so that the whole town, city, county uh, can, can flourish and thrive. And to do that locally together, I think is probably where we're going to see some of the best advances in this area. So where does the church fit into this and, you know, individual congregations? One of, one of you know, I've been seeing a lot of uh, maybe expressions of frustration and outrage. Uh, why wasn't the church leading the charge here? Why are churches following along? Why, you know, from some conservative circles, why are evangelical pastors uh, getting involved in Black Lives Matter? Shouldn't they have long ago been uh, been anti-racist on their own terms? Uh, but at the same time, as I've been reading your work, you are, you're very cautious about congregations and the church at large uh, taking on a kind of, you know, missional narcissism, kind of, you know, savior complex. And so I, I'm really curious. I, I don't know how how you're going to respond to to this question of you know what what should churches be doing and and should what should they have been doing? Yeah, it's great. I think I think what's happened is that you know we are we're facing the basic struggle that, that, that Christians have often I would say always have but even since eighty thirty three is what's the relationship between uh, sort of the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. We can take it all the way back to Augustine. I mean, that's been the, the great tension point. And, and we're still trying to figure that out uh, today. It's a, it's, a, it's a mystery because we're in this world, but not of the world, uh, if, if you're a Christian. And so, 
And so that I think that's just the, the basic the basic tension in, w- in which we live. And so when it comes to issues like this, you know, the, the Christian tradition is full of examples of where churches are are encouraged to to exercise prudence and to think about um, their capacity to help as an organization as an institution or the capacity to send individuals uh, and, and into particular places to bring about uh, change and the common good. So what I would say in terms of that is that I think some churches in some cities, rather in some counties in some cities, probably should sit and listen right now. And I think there's some churches in, in some cities who actually should be in the middle, if not leading their communities in healing and being places of, of reconciliation and restoration. I think local churches have, have not done a good job of seeing themselves as community centers and seeing that the building that they're in can, can play a massive role in facilitating resolution of all sorts of, of conflicts and tensions in the community. And the church can really lead in that. I think churches have the scaffolding and the categories to really invite the community to, to resolve many of the issues that plague them. But most churches' doors are closed throughout the week, right? Maybe Wednesday night it's open for, you know, youth group or Bible study. But what's your building for on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? And, and could you be using it as a way to resolve many of the issues that people are having in their local communities and to bring the city officials into a neutral place for those conversations and, and, and problem-solving sessions can happen? I think, I think that's, that's a really good way that churches can be involved without having to take a position. Right, it's a, it's a, is that churches can create the space for the conversation, dialogue, for the discovery process to happen, so that communities can arrive at effective solutions. On the other hand, just depends on where it is. I think I think some churches, pastors who are advocating, especially against particular instances of of violations of human rights and human dignity, need to be on the forefront being involved in issues that are reminding the community that, that X or Y is wrong and, and, and explain to them why it's wrong and to sort of lead people in, in thinking about ways to institute and apply the best framework of justice to rectify, remedy, address, redress those really gross violations of, of human rights and human dignity. I, I canvassed listeners for questions for you and one listener familiar with your work asks, uh, what would be a personalist analysis of the Black Lives Matter movement? Or, I mean, you know, acknowledging that the Black Lives Matter movement is is not a monolithic movement and there's, but maybe the, like the parts of it that are most intelligible to you or, yeah, or seem, yeah, sure. you know. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, if you go to the blacklivesmatter.org site, uh, you read their mission statement and values. Uh, it's not very personalist. Uh, it's 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 issue driven, and so the, the personalist school again is going to think about building ways of uh, providing justification for Black lives based on anthropology, based on human dignity. So one of the things I wrote a few years ago, and this is not you know overly creative. I said Black Lives Matter because black lives are persons. And when we think about what it means to be a person, whatever it is about black life applies to that. And the extent to which 
black lives are not able to experience personhood, uh, those may be opportunities for us to highlight injustice and, and to create ways to intervene so that black lives can experience humanity, so they, so they can experience personhood. And so a personalist approach to, to Black Lives Matter is going to think about the ways in which black lives are being encouraged or undermined from embracing sort of very, very basic attributes of being human. One of the things I appreciate about Ta-Nehisi Coates's Between the World and Me is that he explicitly acknowledges the theological and ecclesiological underpinnings of the African-American struggle and the civil rights movement of the 20th century, and he rejects Christianity as a resource for liberation. Instead, he argues that American blacks have to de-Christianize and de-theologize their struggle. It's an impressively forthright anti-theological book. Now, there are, of course, historical reasons for blacks to be suspicious of and to reject Christianity, but Coates is speaking theologically, and it seems to me that he rightly targets hope as the doctrine of Christianity most at odds with his pessimistic account of blackness and the legacy of slavery in America. Is Christianity necessarily at odds with various forms of Afro-pessimism? Or is there something to be learned from Afro-pessimism that can be described and comprehended in biblical and theological terms? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I I think Afro-pessimism really is an asset insofar as it exposes, I think it, it clearly exposes the weaknesses of what I would say white Western Christianity. And perhaps what's happened is that I think what he really means is that the sort of white Western presentation of Christianity is that which ought to be rejected. I wonder if he were familiar with sort of Eastern Christianity, uh, if he would make the same claims because of the ways in which Eastern Christianity developed theologically and the sorts of emphases that the Eastern Church actually has. So Afro-pessimism is, is I, I would say, an, an asset in highlighting that. I would not conflate Christianity as this sort of 2,000-year-old historical tradition with the sort of specific form that was delivered uh, through Western Europe. Those are, those are not the same thing, right? And so, so I, th- I think Western European articulations of Christianity, because it was done by, by mortals with blind spots influenced by their own social and, and historical location, they packaged they package Christianity in, in a certain way uh, for a certain community uh, for a certain time. And in the U.S., uh, we simply, in many traditions, just adopted that and continue to, I'd, I'd say, do two things. One is that we, I was going to say regurgitate, that may be, that may be too, too strong. Uh, we, we repeat the things that, that are, are good, but we're, I think we're also repeating and embracing some of the blind spots as well. And I think what I think the challenge is that we we often we often accept a Western a theological canon as a closed canon without any any gaps or, or blind spots or, or flaws instead of interrogating it and trying to strengthen it by highlighting those flaws and and trying to come up with creative ways to address them. And and I think I think if if Christians across the world were talking to each other and, and helping each other with each other's blind spots, 
I think that we would actually get a fuller picture of what Christianity actually is. That that actually fits, I think, with the with the with the biblical story itself, and you know what the ancient creeds uh, were intending to communicate in the in the first few centuries uh, after after Christ's resurrection. Is there a point at which a robust Christian doctrine of hope would have to come into conflict with Afro pessimism? Well, yeah, I, I think I think you know. I mean, hope is going to is going to to sort of force you to think about uh, to whom or or to what are you putting your hope in, and because Afro pessimism is anti anti supernatural and and presupposes you know God's non existence, that's going to be the point at which the discussion about the existence of God is going to have to be raised because hope is a means of, of, of approaching and experiencing a certain, a certain telos. It, it, it's hope is telling a story. Hope is situated in a narrative and a story. And if you reject the story, then the appeals to hope uh, don't make a lot of sense. And I think that's what made the civil rights movement different between the Black Power movement and the Christian version of the movement that we got from Dr. King, because the sort of Christian themes of hope that are actually derived from the hope of the resurrection itself and, and all that that entails, presupposes and demands that people at least are open to the possibility that, that God actually exists. And Afro-pessimism, because it's anti-supernatural, because it presupposes God's non-existence, is, is going to come into conflict with, with the framing of a word like hope. You're the editor of the Oxford Bibliography's entry on Black Liberation Theology. I just, the Oxford Bibliographies are one of my favorite resources out there, and I'm telling my students basically every week, go use them. And it's, uh, it really is a, probably an underappreciated labor of love to edit one of these because, because you're constantly keeping it up. If you were to add a section on, critical race theory. What would you say about the intersection of critical race theory with black liberation theology? I think it would be it would be a small section because if you look at if you look at the time at which uh, critical race theory emerged and liberation theology emerged, they were sort of within within five or ten years of, of each other. They were basically addressing the same issues that they were seeing in society through different disciplines. So one was through uh, religion and theology. Uh, the other was through, you know, sociology, law, and social sciences. So they were sort of seeing the same things, using different disciplines to address those issues. So they're actually pretty similar, right? It's ways in which we, we think about uh, particular disciplines in light of the history of Black oppression in this country and, and ways in which we, we construct notions of Blackness uh, based on uh, those historical models of uh, th- th- those historical histories of, of uh, injustice and, and oppression, and to use those sort of histories as a way to interrogate our current and future theories about uh, about race and culture, about the church, about God, even and and how we move forward. And so that section, I think, would include. Really, it'd be really short, small, because I, I think I think they're basically the same thing. 
but in completely different disciplines. And there, there have so many similarities in the critique and in the tools that are, are offered to do analysis today that there's, readers won't find much difference in the framing and the application of both of those. That's fascinating. And as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't identify yourself in a, in a very substantial way with Black liberation theology tradition. Would that be fair to say? That's fair to say, yes. And so what Native resources does evangelicalism have within its own tradition for Christian reflection on social issues and, you know, issues of, of race? Yeah, sadly, sadly not a lot. American evangelicalism, because it's pretty heterodox and decentralized uh, and, and, and uh, unorganized, and by that I mean there is no sort of central organization of, of evangelicalism, uh, the best that people can, can really do is, is pursue a particular uh, denomination resources, or rather uh, denominational resources. So you know, I was I was raised in the United Methodist Church, and the Methodist Church has a ton of its own has a, its own social teaching canon. I know the Lutherans have one. You know, the the Anglicans have their own. That's the best uh, that we're going to have available to us in, in this in this country. The Catholic tradition has the Vatican, and they have a social canon teaching that's about two hundred years old. Uh, so for them, it's pretty easy. You just go to the Vatican website and put in a topic and boom, it comes up. If you're a Protestant, the best that you can do is look at what particular denominations have said about about particular issues. If you're in a non-denom, you don't have any resources unless somebody in your church or your pastor or somebody comes up with something out of his or her head and just puts it on a blog, but the non-denom world doesn't really have its own canon of social teaching, and they have to sort of cherry-pick their way through it. At least denominations have have thought through these issues, usually in community, and so uh, you get you get better reasoned sort of thought-out positions because a community of people has been activated to think carefully in a very nuanced way about about these really challenging issues facing the world. So Vincent Lloyd has identified a natural law tradition in civil rights era black theology. How would you describe the relationship between somebody like Martin Luther King Jr.'s natural law ethics and, you know, the the sort of standard form of that in Catholic social thought? Oh, yeah, that's that's very good. So, you know, this this actually sort of reflects back on, on the discussion of uh, personalism. You know, uh, personalism has several different forms. There's a there's one base in Thomism. Uh, there's one base in idealist philosophy. Uh, there are other versions of it. And what King learned, the version that he learned at Boston University, was more of the the idealist philosophy version of personalism. And so, because of that, the ways in which uh, so he was sort of influenced by the sort of idealist stream of personalism plus the kind of black church tradition, which I think saved him from going off the idealist end completely, kind of pulled it back, kind of pulled it back toward, I think, a, a more Thomistic approach, actually. But the, the, the starting point is going to be very, very different, right? And so in that Thomistic line, uh, you're going to get much more emphasis on how we think about what, what reason tells us about the human person in light of, of there being 
uh, created by God. The idealist position is going to be much more pragmatic and and utilitarian uh, in terms of that. Uh, so 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 King's use of that uh, versus the Catholic tradition. Uh, is going to overlap some, but not a whole lot, because the the plate how they got there uh, are both really, really different. My own interest in personalism uh, and sort of thinking about natural law in this sense is is really uh, influence uh, in lots of places. I'd say the the biggest influence is probably going to be the the Catholic the sort of uh, uh, Thomistic uh, uh, tradition. Probably my, my biggest influence because that's where that's where the work's been done. And Protestants haven't really done a lot of work on personalism directly. Actually, the last, uh, I mean, I, I can't think of a, of a Protestant personalist perspective being pursued directly since, you know, World War One or two. It's been a long time. So it's, probably, it's probably been when the, during the creation of the National Royal Council of Churches is probably the last time we had kind of a personalist a human right kind of humanism in, in the Protestant world. It's, it's kind of died. So one of my personal crusades is to bring personalism back. Uh, and so I've been using a, a lot of uh, sort of natural law versions of that. The best I found is Christian Smith's version um, at Notre Dame. Uh, his book, What is a Person, is the best. It is the best natural law uh, introduction to what it means to be human. Overlapped with King... With King's work, you'll see some 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 key differences there as well. I think again, if if MLK had not been a Christian, I think his personalism and his use of natural law would have been very different. But I think his I think that Black Church tradition uh, really did keep it in the boundaries of something that that a, a, a Thomistic personalist will more likely recognize. The Conference of National Black Churches is ten years old this year. What do you see as its successes, and what's the future of a coalition of black churches? Yeah, it's interesting. The, the, the black churches really struggle to sort of find its place in, in, in the black community in terms of, of its role as leaders. What's really been fascinating about these protests is that the churches are not even—the churches are, are spectators. Even the black churches? Black, everybody's been a spectator. They've shown up. Post hoc, right? They aren't. They weren't the organizers. Uh, they they show up at events that have been organized by somebody else for the most part, and often spectators. Uh, they'll intervene. They'll they'll step into situations and and help lead. That happened in Brooklyn. There was a protest in Brooklyn, and a, a black pastor pulled up and a uh, he he pulled up in a, a van with a trailer and a microphone and, and started preaching. Things like that. There are places where, where black church leaders are organizing events mainly for their own church members, but they're not really seen as community leaders like they used to be. They aren't necessarily the go-to people. Uh, very interesting, a column came out in the Washington Post, I believe, or the Times, I think it was the Post, that black politicians are also uh, sort of not seen as go-to people in terms of, of finding solutions and leading on this. And so this sort of black church caucus, I think, has an important conversation to have by addressing their role in the black community and how to reestablish themselves as credible leaders of the community when it comes to issues that, that plague uh, so many parts of, of our society. And I think, I think what we saw after King's death in particular, and I, I would say with the expansion of, of 
lots of, of welfare programming in the 1970s is that the black church just, just sort of slowly got pushed on the margins. And by the time we got to the 1990s, as a community influencer stakeholder in a lot of places, the black church wasn't, wasn't a place needed to get things done. What was doing the pushing? Well, it was, it was, a, it was a combination of a couple of things. Uh, one is a lot of the black middle class left the communities. And so you had people who, the black middle class, the kind of people like Rosa Parks and MLK, who used to live in these communities, moved out to the suburbs, but they would drive in to go to church and then drive back out. And so their role in those communities basically dissipated. But you also had situations where the expansion of social programming made some of the church programming irrelevant. So if you think uh, there's a situation here in Harlem, you saw, saw it happen in Harlem, lots of churches in the city used to used to run all sorts of food programs, soup kitchens, food pantries, and things like that. And then the city passed an ordinance that said that you can only distribute food that's prepared in the building. So you'd have these old, you know, these, these mothers, these older women, in the, these retired women in the church, right? What would they do? They would go home and cook something in the sort of big, massive aluminum pans, right? And they would bring it down and you would like serve it to people who needed food. Well, that became illegal. You had to prepare the food in the building, but guess what? In order to have a kitchen that, that you could cook food in, it had to be a restaurant-grade kitchen. So these small black churches were having to put kitchens in their churches that were the same quality of a five-star restaurant in the financial district where stockbrokers eat. And what it did is it inadvertently cut off the sort of programming that a lot of black churches had in Harlem. And what happened? You also cut them off from the people that they're serving. You also cut them off from being seen as, as leaders. You also cut them off relationally as well. So when people are in crisis, they don't go to the church anymore because they don't know those people. Right? So what are they left to do? They have to sort of go to uh, state agencies and the social service system instead of the, the local church because the church doesn't interact with the people anymore because of the expansion of some of those programs. So those were the two unintended consequences, I think, of, of African Americans moving out and uh, the expansion of some of these uh, local local programming and, and some of the barriers to entry uh, that are created by, by regulations and ordinances and things like that. Anthony Bradley, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.